You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. And Tracy, uh, you know, it's it's Saturday. We're recording. I'm excited. Are you excited? Yeah. Balance has returned to the universe. All is well. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're doing, we're doing, on the, on the theme of balance returning to the universe, that's one of the more, uh, you know, rewardingly authentic reactions to Grogu headbanging that we've gotten in a while out of a guess. So well done there, Patrick. You're, you're, you're already kind of setting up the bar high for, for this weekend's recordings. So we have, um, we have Rebecca Framow actually to thank for that, that big reaction there. So, Hey, Rebecca, how are you doing? Good. How are you guys? We're doing well. So a little background there to catch people up here. Rebecca and I have that kind of funky relationship that you have in the world of publishing where you like quasi sort of kind of know someone because you have someone in common. And the someone in common we have is that we're agency sisters. We both belong to Bridget Smith of Jabberwocky Literary. Hi, mom. <laughs> and so <laughs> we're going to do our best to be well-behaved and non-embarrassing and to bring honor to the clan and all of that. It's not going to work, but you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll try. We'll, we'll, we really, I know, try. right? Like we're, we're going to, we're going to try not to let down the side anyway. And you're here actually, because of your, oh, I'm so sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, I actually met Bridget for the first time in person last week. So uh, now it's more personal if I do let her down. Nice. Nice. Where, where did you meet her? Down in New York city. Uh, I went to do the, you know, the official agency visit to, put my illegible signature on one copy of my book of Fantastic. the many on their shelves. Fantastic. I have never done that. Um, I'm not the meeting Bridget. I've actually had the opportunity to meet her a couple of times, but I've never actually like been in the agency before. I'm merely a ghost and, and a, a legend and a haunting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that seems on brand. So, you know, it's absolutely. Fine. Yeah, absolutely. So you're here because of your debut novella, The Iron Children, which came out in April from Solaris. And I feel like we are coming at exactly the right time because we've been talking novellas a lot lately, particularly because the last episode that we had together, Patrick and I were talking to Fonda Lee about Untethered Sky, her novella. So novella's having a moment and so are you. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really exciting that more of these kind of shorter, compact little books are having an opportunity to come out into the world. I think even a couple of years ago, there was sort of the conventional wisdom that if you were writing something under 80 or 90,000 words, just like forget it, there was uh, no place for that in publishing. And that has really changed just over the last five years or so. And it's really exciting to see. Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, novellas are sort of a friendly size for people who aren't maybe sure of an author they don't know or want to try something different. And like, are they, I don't know, they have commitment issues when it comes to big doorstopper books or, or, you know, whatever the, whatever the case may be. But I think they kind of thread a needle for a certain type of reader. And I think that they also present some really interesting challenges for, for authors too, especially because you've come, we've talked with a bunch of authors who have worked in, in novel length and then kind of found themselves in the novella, but you've worked primarily in short fiction, or at least in terms of what's been published up to this point, and now have sort of like leveled up, I guess, I'm not giving any shade to short fiction here, into the novella size. So Definitely. I'm kind of wondering like how that happened for you. 
For sure. Uh, it was actually a bit of a, a roundabout journey. I'd been writing, I've been writing short fiction for several years. I'd actually written a one novella-length piece before that was published in the Fantasist magazine, which focused on novella-length work. And then I wrote my first novel, and that's how I, sound, I, how I signed with Bridget. Uh, and after you know that novel was you know going out on sub in early 2020 during right at the start oh, of yeah. the pandemic when everything slowed down in publishing, I turned my focus to this novella length thing that I'd been sort of tinkering with, and so I worked on that for the next while. And I sent it to Bridget like I don't know if there's anything in this. I still don't know you know how you break into the novella market. As you say, most of it is you know the ones that get attention. A lot of them do tend to be from more established authors that are trying their hands to novella length work. But Solaris is has had launched a novella line, the Solaris satellites, a year or two ago. And so they send it that way and uh, they liked it enough to pick it up. And the editor who ended up taking over on the Solaris satellites line, she's wonderful. Uh, and after working with me on the novella, Bridget was like, well, she's just, you know, joined the publishing firm just joined with Solaris, uh, and maybe she'd like to take another look at your novel. So we send it over there, and now that book is coming out in 2024. So it's sort of oh, nice. Tumble, nice. You know, it, it's it, like the uh, publishing hat trick right there. Well done. Yeah, it was very unexpected, deeply serendipitous, uh, and I'm incredibly grateful to my editor, Amy, for, for taking a chance on both of these books. But I'm actually really glad that it worked out such that the novella came out first, because it has been. It has felt like sort of a much lower stress debut experience than coming mm. out with a full novel. Yeah, it's like the expectations are a little bit different. It's a little bit chiller, and uh, it's kind of nice to be able to kind of put my foot in the door before the big, you know, the novel comes out next year and having to sort of deal right. with all of that. Right, right. It's it's um, I don't know. I mean, again, I feel God. I'm doing such a bad job of talking about this in terms that don't sound like mildly condescending because I dig novellas <laughs> so deeply but I was about to say like it's almost like a training wheels debut experience but again that makes it sound no, it's, like it's, it's like here's you on your rinky dink little bike but that's you know it's way, absolutely true yeah. though it's like the expectations for novellas are a little bit different you know when you're looking at what kind of a splash they're going to make how the the marketing aspect of it is going to go mm -hmm. it's just kind of like well it's it, it is sort of halfway between a short story and a novel Mm -hmm. in that way when you're just coming out with your first one you're like well i think some people are going to read it and i hope hopefully they'll like it but it doesn't feel as kind of make or break for whatever you're going to write for the rest of your life as a first novel can be mm -hmm. and so it's mm -hmm. been you know a lot of my my friends in my debut group have been it's a very i'm sure you guys know a very stressful experience uh, and i just kind of feel like i've just been like paddling around in a little pool like oh it's you know <laughs> People can buy my book if they want. That'll be nice. But I don't this really have to stress out for another couple months. Right, right. That's so, okay. Um, we've been, there's a bit of, like, we keep talking around the Iron Children, but we kind of haven't talked about the book yet. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to pitch hold on, the hold book on, to Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, hold okay, on, okay. All right. So I'm, I've already got an image in my head of what the Iron Children is about. I'm assuming 
that uh, mm-hmm. there's 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 like certain children who are the iron children and the other children have to come into the arena and then the chairman is up there and the chairman's like <laughs> giving them things oh that they like play-doh or legos and they have to build something mm-hmm. and then there's judges looking at like that's what i'm assuming the iron children oh patrick louise oh. right the the iron chef children <laughs> right yeah like the, the, the iron montessori as it were exactly <laughs> No, I think I think Patrick's a perfect person to pitch this to because actually the Iron Children has sort of whips to me of a show that God, like a year ago was one of your picks of the week. And so I thought to myself, like, ooh, this is gonna scratch an itch for for Patrick. This sounds fun. Okay. Oh, now I'm curious to hear about that show. I would describe the Iron Children as Basically, what happens when the lead on a project ends up disappearing halfway through and the intern has to take over, and also someone in the project is determined to sabotage it, and also the lead on the project was a robot nun, and all of the people who are uh, being now working on this project are sort of cyborg super soldiers, but they're also very new and don't really know what they're doing. Um, and then all these people get trapped on a mountain together and things kind of in the middle of a snowstorm and things kind of come to a head. Uh, so that's basically the book. Um, there's three POVs, which is a, probably too ambitious for a novella, but that's where it ended up going. The three main characters, one of them is a novice in this kind of military organization who ends up in charge of a unit of soldiers when they get attacked unexpectedly on their way to join up with the rest of the army. The other is the sergeant who's kind of, you know, the the non-com officer from among these troops and has the experience that the novice doesn't. Um, And then the third is a saboteur who's embedded within this group of cyborg soldiers who all look identical. So that's very easy and had been planning to sabotage the mission before things went wrong and is now trapped with them on this mountain together. Um, And then things go variously wrong from there. You had me at clockwork battle nuns. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very cool and i and i know what show tracy is thinking that uh this would remind me of yeah yeah you're, you're well thinking, now, now you're you have to fort, now you have to say it yeah you're thinking about fort salem right with the witches mm-hmm. yeah 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 <laughs> yeah so i don't know if you ever saw this was a um gosh i think it was freeform which like i am not freeform's target audience by any <laughs> by any means but this mm-hmm. was just a show that i really really liked and it was it was about um uh instead of salem being where like the witches were were persecuted and killed mm-hmm. it's like they actually came forward and helped the united states become the united states like they helped with the civil war they became the army they became the warriors that were like fighting the battles for us and and like protecting and then, and then there's the there's the split between. But anyway, I think mm-hmm. the I think the parallels that that Tracy's thinking of is that there was a, you know, you always have your units, and your units are three people. It's three oh. witches who have different mm-hmm. different uh, different uh, abilities and and powers, and like that becomes sort of your coven. And uh, I loved that show, and I was sad when that show went away. I really was. I think they did. Yeah, I heard seasons. great. I hadn't heard very much about it, but everything that I'd heard about it was great. So I've definitely been meaning to check it out. Hopefully it doesn't disappear from streaming before I have the chance. Um, (laughs) Well, they are definitely dropping things so they don't have to pay for them anymore, which is interesting. Yeah. 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 No, there's been a number of um, interesting cases of that, like writer's strike adjacent sort of things. Like people were Mm -hmm. wondering why 
HBO HBO Max changed its name to just Max, if I if I recall, is the move mm-hmm. that they did. And apparently, yeah, yeah, apparently the rationale that guides that, which is not widely publicly known, because why would they want it to be, is a lot of the contracts for the writers um, of their programming said that if the if the programming ever moved from from their streaming in uh, from a streaming distribution into uh, HBO branded distribution uh-huh. that they would receive a certain bump in their take and so their solve became well let's just take the words the letters HBO out of the name oh. of our streaming network and thus they did and so that allowed them to kind of, you know, letter of the law versus spirit of the law, kind of work their yep. way past what they considered a financial blockade in the, in the contract, which is why on the theme of agency sisters and, and all of that sort of stuff, if indeed you are a writer who wants to go out into the big world and have your stuff uh, land on shelves and in audiobook or wherever else in various places, get you an agent like for real, real, or at minimum a contract lawyer who can help you review stuff and, and really kind of pay attention to things that are, are landmines that you don't even know are there. Yeah. It makes a huge, tremendous difference. Yeah. For real. Yeah. Um, So, So one of the things I always, one of the things I like best about getting to talk to writers regularly is figuring out where the through line is between like who they are as a person and like the things they do as a person and the work that they've produced. And so I have a completely bonkers theory here and uh-huh. it's going to be your job to either confirm or deny Rebecca. I'll do but my I best. Feel, I feel like on some level you don't arrive at science fiction, fantasy clockwork battle nuns while being an archivist working in Boston by accident. I feel like, Whoa, 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 whoa. So one of the things <laughs> that that's behind the scenes that Tracy does is she always asks the, the authors how to pronounce their names, but, mm-hmm. but you blew it on this one. Cause you didn't ask, are you an archivist or an archivist? Oh, mm-hmm. uh, I would say that I'm an archivist probably, okay. but okay. It also probably depends on who I heard say it last, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I, I did say archivist, so I might have tilted your your mm-hmm. placement a little bit there on that answer. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, Rebecca so you were gonna. I, I completely, I completely blew up your question, but you were going down a good path. So keep going. Tracy <laughs> uh, hates it when I do this to her. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. I'm sure the guests hate it more. <laughs> Here they are trying to remember what they were thinking of when when you Kool-Aid man threw the wall of, of what they were planning on saying to be like, but wait, no, the I pronunci- the human shit post have things to say. The pronunciation question is important. I just, uh, you know, a week or two ago was on the phone with the person who's going to be doing the audiobook for the Iron Children. And they had a long list of words, which they wanted questions about how to pronounce because there are a lot of made up words and names or words and names in the book that sort of have roots in some or the other linguistic term. Um, And then there were a couple of words on the list that were words that are real words and I don't know how to pronounce, but I put them (laughs) in the book. (laughs) They're, you know, Latin terms for things or whatever. And so I'm sitting there like, do I, I guess I should look it up beforehand. So I make sure that I'm not screwing it up when I tell the audio book vendor. So it's, it's, I I understand how vital it is. (laughs) 
I will say it's awesome that they reached out to you because they don't always do that. Yeah, it we, was we've great. We've been doing the show a really long time, and, and we've talked to plenty of authors who never got any input whatsoever. Wow. Yeah, and, I definitely and, felt and lucky for that. They were devastated by that. They were devastated by that because there, there were, you know, names and things that were mispronounced or weren't pronounced the way that the author had had it in their own head. And then once it's in the audiobook, it kind of takes on a life of its own. Definitely. You know? Um, and, and so, yeah, for so sure. it's really cool. It's really cool. Yeah, and it that. ended up being a really fun conversation because a lot of the stuff that's the, – the names that I used in – for characters in the book – uh, or actually, I was so I was studying in my first year of studying Yiddish at the time, um, and I did a lot of placeholder names because there are a lot of characters. It's a unit full of soldiers. Some of them disappear early on. But I was like, you know what? I'm trying to remember the names for numbers in Yiddish. I'm just going to name them all after these <laughs> Yiddish numbers, and then that'll be a mnemonic for me, and I'll change it later. Um, and instead of changing it later, I just made it part of the world building. I'm like, oh, they're all <laughs> you know named by batch by a trainer who picks you know different number names every year from different languages. Uh, and one of those languages can be a Yiddish analog. Um, nice. And uh, then when I had this call with the audiobook vendor, it turned out that uh, the guy I was talking to had also studied Yiddish. And he was like, oh, yeah, I see where these names come from. I see what you were doing there. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm, awesome. I'm outed. Someone picked up on my you know, internal study time <laughs> that I was doing when I was writing this book. Uh, but it was really fun to just have that conversation and kind of talk about where the reasoning went there. That's awesome. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I, 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 again, have derailed your question, Tracy. No, no, it's totally fine. Like, we're, we're getting at awesome stuff. Um, I mean, in, in a way, this is in the spirit of the question anyway, the sort of like what what bits of you have sort of worked their way. And in, in the fact that I have a theory that, that an archivist has insights into, you know, things that I think at, 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 at the 10,000 foot level, people think they know like what, what nuns are. People think they know what military organization looks like because we all have sort of vague exposures to these concepts through stories and media and, you know, depending on our educations or things. But I think to, to kind of grasp it in a way where you can credibly world build it and to be interested enough in these things in the first place where that's something you want to do, there's a story there. Uh, a little bit. I would honestly say that probably for this particular story, the part of me that is most present in it is uh, – so my, my particular brand of archiving is I'm a moving image archivist. Uh, I have you know experience with film and video and sort of obsolete technologies. Um, but definitely uh, the experience of being someone who's in a position – walking into an organization and then suddenly being asked to do something that you were never expecting to have to do in your first couple days on the job. And they're like, Oh, you know, this, this tape deck is malfunctioning. Can you fix it for us? I'm like, can I, uh, well, I guess I'm gonna, <laughs> give me I'm a here. pencil. I'm ready. <laughs> uh, and that, that experience definitely went into some of this book just when I was, uh, picking, you know, the character who's, you know, sort yeah. of this inexperienced person who's trying very hard to look composed and to not let anybody know that she doesn't really know what she's doing uh, and to get people to sort of have confidence in her as she's doing that. Um, definitely, certainly came out of my background um, and is a little bit, I guess, what you try to do as an author, which is make people have confidence that you know what you're talking about when you're making up a world and making up technology uh, and, you know, sort of building a culture and religion and military, uh, some of which may have 
groundings in real world research and some of us which might just come out of your head and some of which might have a basis in stuff you just read or RPG campaigns you just played or all of that other stuff that kind of goes into the soup that's a book. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so now Moving Images Archivist is new to me. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. What, what's that yeah. about? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, so a lot of the, to give the, you know, the elevator pitch, many of the records of the 20th century and early 21st century are increasingly audiovisual. Uh, a lot of it is on technology that's very rapidly degrading. So, you know, when we were kids, uh, when I was a kid, we were still recording stuff on VHS or on mini DV, uh, on, you know, little, those little audio cassettes yeah. that used to go in a, uh, in, um, answering machines. Right. Uh, and all of those things degrade very rapidly. And the, the, when I was starting in my, you know, going to grad school for this, uh, we would say, well, maybe you have about 15 years to save all of it before it starts to you know, degrade completely to the point where we're not going to have the machines and we're not going to have the knowledge. Um, and the tapes themselves are just going to be old enough that you're not going to be able to get that back anymore. Um, so that's more or less what I went to grad school for. I work now uh, in a public television archive, uh, working to save some of that stuff, which is also a rich mine of inspiration just as far as uh, you know, the stuff that went on public television over the past 40 years is just a cool and wild array. Uh, and I also work a little bit in digital archives, which, you know, we were just talking about streaming disappearing from television. Uh, the fact that stuff that's currently on the Internet that we think is immediately accessible, um, much of it will no longer be accessible within a couple of years as soon as, you know, a website dies or someone takes down the link is also a major concern. So just trying to make sure that that stuff gets put somewhere that you can find it again uh, and that you know where it is and what it is and keep trying to move it forward onto mm -hmm. media that can continue to be accessed uh, is most of what I do. So uh, sometimes it's very exciting when I'm sitting down with, you know, reels of old film or old tapes uh, and like trying to figure out what they are. And sometimes my job is just moving files around, which is less yeah. exciting, uh, yeah. but still important. What do, you, um, what, do you, what, what do you think about like people uh, trying to save their own stuff? Like, there's lots of companies that have popped up now. Uh, there's one I hear on the radio all the time that that's like, you know, just just send us your stuff and we'll we'll digitize it and send it back to you. I mean, I think that uh, any method that you can take to save that stuff is great. The number one thing that I would say for stuff that's getting digitized, for stuff that's born digital. Um, is the mantra is lots of copies keep stuff safe. Uh, so the thing that always makes me a little bit nervous is for the companies that are like, we'll digitize it and we'll put it on our own private uh, server or our own private hosting service. And then if that company goes under and they give you, it's you gone. know, yeah. two weeks to say, hey, get all your stuff out yeah. or goodbye, and then it is gone. Um, You're just trading not, one fragility for a new fragility. Exactly. And unfortunately, in the digital era, it's, you know, there's not so much of a, I can put it on the shelf and forget about it anymore. Um, you know, in some ways, with the stuff that I work with, old film is the most secure of all, uh, because that will actually last for a couple hundred years, depending on the kind of film stock it is. Uh, and it's not going to degrade so much and people can still look at it and see what it is. But with, a you know, a magnetic media or a digital file, um, you need to constantly be paying attention to that and be like, okay, I want to have a couple different copies. I want to know where those copies are. And then if my one streaming you know, cloud service goes away or my DVD breaks or I drop my hard drive, I know I have a backup. 
I can move that to a different service and I'm just going to keep migrating it until hopefully uh, someday in the future we'll have something a little bit better and more secure. You know, every year I go to digital storage conferences and they're like, DNA storage is going to be the next big thing, which sounds very science fictional. Uh, but they have not yet managed to make that. Uh, and they can store stuff in DNA now, but they have not yet actually made it, made it to the point where you can access the stuff easily that they're storing on DNA. So it's still not something that I would recommend yet to most listeners of this podcast. It's funny wait a minute. I... So wait, when you say DNA storage, that does that mean what I think it means? <laughs> yeah, uh, they encode data onto like little... Uh, you know, DNA molecules that they store in kind of a liquid. When I first heard about it, I was like, oh, this sounds so cool. So you could have like a flower or a tree that like stores your entire library. Um, it's less, you know, if I was writing it in a story, that's probably how it would Yeah, it's, you'd make it awesome. Yeah. Exactly. As it is right now, it's, you know, kind of little little vials of liquid with, with yeah, here's your, DNA molecules. Here's your molecules goo of memories. Exactly. Uh, and they just have, because it's so little, they have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them. And they're like, all right, here's where it is. We've stored a ton of data here. Yeah. But it's very expensive to sequence DNA. So yeah. you can work with a DNA vendor and be like, I'm going to store, you know, whatever, have, however many gigabytes in there, but it will cost much more than most people could afford to pay. <laughs> I mean, the whole, the, the, the goo of memory thing, though, has a certain, like, William Gibson, Philip K. Dick vibe to it. Like, one could envision, like, the, the next, the, the third, you know, retelling of We Can Remember It For You Wholesale turning sure. into, turning into, like, we're just going to, instead of somehow reprogramming you through, through various psychological techniques, we're just going to, like, inject the memories we want you to have or something. Yes. Or we're going to preserve your memory and your personality in in the goo of memory, and then we can transfer it to a different body or an artificial body, which is, you know, definitely one of the things that I was thinking about when I was writing the Iron Children and coming up with the the Clockwork Battle Nuns, where their concept is that you know once you decide that you want to sort of take take the habit is what they call it, you know, become fully uh, fully ascended, then you just sort of write your write your memory onto their, their little technology and install it in this clockwork body instead. And that's your body now. And that means that you've sort of uh, gone past the needs of the physical. You don't have to eat or drink anymore. You are more holy than other people who are still kind of ground bound with their, their, their flesh forms. Um, and so tying it, you know, into this religious idea was something that, you know, I thought was fun to play around with because, but a lot of times, you know, I, I, I took a lot of inspiration from other stories about, uh, you know, people who were trying to imprint human memory in robotic bodies, achieve immortality that way, or preserve loved ones that way, and the good and bad things that could come of that. So, ha, I was right. As an archivist, your desire to, to work with and preserve data <laughs> over time and migrate it to more preserved and permanent and enduring forms does have something to do with the Iron it Children. Does, Boom. It does. It definitely I'm comes really back to that. I'm really good at my job. You so really good. are. <laughs> you found the thread. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, so I, I guess for me, this is this is like the billionth time Patrick's heard me ask this question before, and he's probably like, "Oh god," <laughs> when this question comes out. But I always want to ask it because it's it's like a personal hobby horse of mine. I get psyched when people's work is described, uh, whether through criticism or, or through blurbs or, or by the authors themselves as science fantasy, 
because I feel like science fantasy doesn't get the love it deserves. Mm-hmm. I think it, it ends up being kind of, um, I don't know, like the, the the weird child of the divorce between science fiction and fantasy that, that need mm-hmm. never have happened. Um, and so I'm kind of interested in, in whether that's a label you own for the work itself or if that's just one that's sort of like emerged through people's responses to it. Because I've been seeing it as I've been doing my Iron Children homework. Oh, <laughs> well, I think it definitely was in its roots because another uh, and, you know, the the baby Grogu that we, we started out with is actually pretty apropos because another major influence for this book was Star Wars, the Clone Wars and thinking about, uh, you know, that kind of science fantasy um and people who are, you know, kind of dedicated to or trained up or raised to be soldiers from birth and how individuality kind of uh, exerts itself in various ways, even when it's not intended or designed to happen. Um, it's a huge part of what went into this book. And a lot of how Star Wars works is you've got some of the trappings of science fiction, but underlying it is a lot of mysticism and a lot of... Uh, you know, we don't really understand how this works, or we think we understand how this works, or we've come up with a cosmology for how this works that may or may not be accurate to the underlying science of it. Um, And so what I really wanted to do with Iron Children uh, is have some mechanics for how things work. You know, there are these, these robots, per se, that are that are the the clockwork battle nuns, and there are these cyborgs, you know, uh, augmented humans that are part metal, um, that are these kind of science fiction concepts. But within the story, the people think of these as sort of, they think of them as sort of religious technology. They think of it in religious terms. Uh, they have philosophy debates about it um, and, you know, argue to each other about what it means within their cosmology and whether it's, you know, sacred or blasphemous to do this to people uh, or, you know, build this kind of technology. And they have different viewpoints about uh how that works and what it means within the context of the book. Uh, so I really love having kind of that science fantasy space to play around with where it's not necessarily clear what is coming from faith, what might be magic, what is all science or whether it's some kind of mix of the two. Uh, I think of it a lot in terms of the way that people within the book think of it uh, as, you know, the way that religious philosophers would sort of argue in the 15th and 16th century and 17th century Uh, about when they observe natural rules of the world and they say, oh, well, this, you know, maybe this came from God or the gods or this is, you know, this means something cosmologically, but also we can do experiments, we can observe it, we can study it, we can build on it. Uh, And sort of combining those worldviews was really fun for me uh, and gives me a lot of space both to play around and to kind of fudge and say, well, how does this work? The characters don't necessarily know, which means that I don't necessarily have to know. Or if I know, maybe I'm not telling right now. (laughs) All right. Well, that is it. Um, that feels that feels summative and whole, which means <laughs> I don't know. That I'm feeling I'm feeling a picks of the week vibe right now. What do you say, Patrick? Picks of the week. Apparently, I say right. yes. Apparently, you do. <laughs> what else do you say for your pick of the week, sir? Uh, I am ridiculously excited. And it's funny, like I, uh, we talk about streaming. I, I would love for Paramount Plus and all the new Star Trek stuff to stop kicking me hard in the feels. Because <laughs> <laughs> it seems They're like every gonna. time, every time they launch a new thing, it just hits me. You know, uh, so Strange New World season two is out. 
uh, as of this recording, there's two episodes available. And I have loved both episodes. And I, I posted something on Facebook. Uh, it's been like 57 years, I think, since the first time that we heard the words, you know, space, the final frontier on a television. And uh, I still get chills. When, it, when I hear Anson Mount say it now on, on Strange New Worlds as, as Christopher Pike, I get chills. I get, I get emotional. <laughs> and, and so uh, it's a great time to be a Star Trek fan we're getting all this great stuff. It is sad uh, to your point about you know things dropping off of, of streaming services. Prodigy has apparently been is one of the things that's getting pulled off of uh, Paramount Plus. Oh no! Uh, and it's been canceled. And I think it's a it's a thing where they don't want to pay for it, or they want to they want to move it to somewhere else where they can make more money off of it. So they're they're dropping it off of Paramount Plus, and they're going to put it somewhere else. Well, that's really a shame. I've been watching Voyager through for the first time, actually, over the past year, and I was really looking forward to moving to Prodigy the after Prodigy, finishing yeah. that. It'll end up on some other service where they get paid for it. So, uh, but yeah, it's it's kind of sad. But uh, you know, Strange New Worlds is out now. Um, I am really like I I cannot tell you how excited I am that they are doing a crossover with Lower Decks. I've seen a lot of stuff crossover. about that. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh my god. I, I I'm like I know they're gonna make me wait for it, and I hate them for that. I fucking mm-hmm. hate them for that. like I wanted it to be episode two, but I know they're, <laughs> gonna, they're gonna do it somewhere in the middle. So, but yeah, Strange New Worlds. I just love it. It's 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 some of the best Star Trek we we've, we've ever had right now. It's like a it's just a wonderful time to be a Star Trek fan. So, Strange New Worlds season two, Paramount Plus. That's my pick. Awesome. How about you, Rebecca? Uh, well, I had a couple things that I was thinking of, but based on what we've been talking about, uh, I've actually been reading for the first time an older webcomic that started in 2012 uh, that talks a lot about kind of uh, you know humans transferring into robot bodies and preservation of memory and technology and all that. It's called Oh Human Star. Um, hmm. It's by uh, Blue Deliquanti. Um, I actually don't know whether it's fully complete or whether it's still ongoing because I'm only halfway through at the present time. Uh, But it's a really lovely story about, you know, someone who kind of uh, wakes up in a robot body uh, a certain number of years after his death. Uh, There's sort of a mystery of how he came to be that way. But he discovers that his uh, former partner has been sort of raising a robot daughter version of him. And then it's, you know, sort of becomes this family story and this, uh, question of you know personality and memory um, and I've been really really enjoying it that's awesome that's awesome that's really cool we don't we don't actually talk about web comics very much so that's that's interesting kind of new new angle on stuff so if I remember correctly um, and this may have been from when we were green room talking getting things set up you are in Montreal right now I am in Montreal right now yeah then you you may be uniquely positioned to know what I'm talking about here. Uh-huh. Um, so it was Father's Day in the United States uh, not long ago, and I believe in Canada as well. Um, and my husband is a huge gamer, has been for forever. He has a poster that was one of his Christmas gifts that's like the top 100 games from 2023, 2022, that is like a scratch-off poster. So it names every one of the games. It's in the top 100 on Board Game Geek, and he's been like made it his goal to, by the end of this calendar year, play all of them. And so he's been scratching them off as he goes, and lots of them we already owned and he had played before. But one of them was a game where he was like, really? This is the thing? 
um, because he had never heard of it before. And then he did his homework on it. And he's like, no, no, we need this game. Uh Um, So we got last week, right before Father's Day, um, a a lovely hardwood carved crokinole set. Um, Crokinole is a table game. Ah, Patrick is is seems familiar. Uh, Crokinole is a table game that is uh, sort of an old Canadian settler game, and it's played on a hexagonally shaped board. Um, rather, the whole table area is hexagonal. There's a circular play area in the middle of it, and then the space between the circular play area and the hexagonal space is a gutter, basically. And it's this highly waxed, sheened surface with different point scoring areas on it. And the idea behind Crokinole is imagine shuffleboard, but at your table with your fingers doing flicking things. So it's sort of like shuffleboard meets hockey puck thing meets this probably happened because it was too cold and people were too drunk to do other stuff. Um, And like a lot of like darts does, it scores... um, the two, the two teams or the two individuals playing against each other score by the difference in their points rather than by – so there's only ever one, one side that scores in any given round. Um, and there's like this little powdered wax that you use underneath your pucks to make sure that everything keeps sort of like spinning across the board fast enough. And I cannot begin to explain how ridiculously competitive my family became immediately (laughs) in the course of playing Crokinole. Um, It is easy enough in terms of the rules for anybody, no matter how panicked they get about learning games with rules to them. Uh, It's easy enough for anybody to learn them um, and also easy enough for them to do it probably extremely inebriated. Um, But also... There's some legitimate strategy and some subtlety to it. Um, and my son has revealed himself to be frighteningly good at it. Um, <laughs> and so if you haven't had the opportunity to try out Crokinole before, it's actually legit kind of fun in a, in a sort of old school messing around kind of way. So nice. recommend. Yeah, I've seen it in, you know, board game cafes in Montreal. Like but bars I've not, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And bars and stuff. But I've not played it. So maybe I should uh, add that to my agenda while we're here. Yeah, it's a funky little game. I guess some people even have like pool cues that they use for it, but that <laughs> seems like it would scuff the board. It also seems like I have I have ten pool cues essentially right, right here attached to these these wrists. So I think we're good. So we're tool using creatures, but we don't necessarily need to use tools all the time. <laughs> yeah, not for everything. So Rebecca, it's been awesome talking to you. It's really cool to hear all about the Iron Children. Congratulations on the debut and congratulations on the debut novel coming out next year. So that's going to be huge. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's been great talking to you guys. Uh, Absolutely. Let's make sure people know where to find you and where to find the Iron Children and to give you all their money and their patronage and to love you forever. (laughs) That would be so nice. Um, Yeah, uh, you can find me on my website, which is just RebeccaFramow.com. That's Rebecca, R-E-B-E-C-C-A. Framow, FR is in French, AI is in artificial intelligence, MOW is in Modelon, uh, dot com. Uh, or you can find me on Twitter at Rifka, which is R-Y-F-K-A-H on Twitter. Um, and you can find links to buy the Iron Children on my website. You can buy the ebook anywhere ebooks are sold or direct from Solaris. Uh, you can buy the physical copy from Amazon or Barnes and Noble, or you can Super get the signed cool cover. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, or you can get signed copies uh, from my local bookstore, the Brookline Booksmith. I think that's currently the only place right now that has signed copies. And I actually got um, my friend who's a wonderful artist 
made me a little stamp of one of the dedicates, which is the, well, she collaborated with my wife uh, to, to secretly send me uh, a stamp of the dedicates, which are the sort of the cyborgs in the book, uh, giving a little uh, two thumbs up with their forearms. Um, nice. So that's, that is only available at the Brookline Booksmith, uh, if people are interested in that. Um, and then my first novel, Lady Eve's Last Con, will be coming out, I believe, currently scheduled for June of 2024. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Have a good one, Rebecca. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you guys so much. All good things. Here we are at the end again. But there's some stuff you should probably know before you go. First, consider heading over to beyondthetrope.com and checking out their podcast. It's a lot of fun. Giles and Michelle have been around for nearly a decade now, I think, having fun chats with writers, artists, actors, and more. They put out a new episode every Tuesday and have something like 430 overall in the can, I think, as of this recording. It might be 431, I don't know. But that means there's plenty there for you to dive into. Second, if you liked this episode of The Functional Nerds, Consider giving us a couple of stars on your favorite podcast platform or posting about this episode or any of our episodes on your favorite social media platform. Tell your friends about us. Have them come over. We would really appreciate that part. If you buy a book mentioned on the podcast, let us know on social media. Tag us. Tag the author. That's always so much fun and it really, really drives home that... We help sell books every once in a while. Now, if you really, really, really enjoyed this episode, you could head over to patreon.com slash functional nerds and give us a couple of bucks. I mean, that helps to keep the lights on. We like that. It's kind of hard to podcast in the dark. You can get access to some cool stuff like a pretty engaged and vibrant super secret facebook group a monthly virtual hangout or even an extra episode it's called the just us episode of the podcast and it's exclusively at this point for our patreon backers so if you just want to hear tracy and i talk about stuff that might be where you need to go other than that huh what do we think about mando season three Mr. Carpiers. You got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. If you've if you've never listened to the podcast, there there's there's two different styles here. There's there's Tracy who does prep work and comes up with some very thoughtful questions. And then oh squirrel. Oh for God's sake. Patrick Louise. <laughs> Are you okay with me recording you today for the purposes of this podcast? <laughs> Okay. That's probably a good enough signal. <laughs> when someone comes up to me and says, hey, I really love what you do. I'm like, I'm sorry. Do you know who I like? I think you have me confused with someone else. The whiz bang and the gosh wow and the sense of wonder stuff. My favorite thing about time travel is I actually had a time travel joke for you guys, but you didn't like it. I'm so excited. <laughs>